I'm Rick O'Shea and welcome to another chapter of the book show here on RTE Radio 1. Breda Brown is with me. What are you reading, Breda? I'm reading Blood Ties by Brian McGilloway. He's the Northern Irish crime writer and it's the sixth novel in his Gartha Inspector Ben Devlin series. Which might explain a little bit about what we're doing later on. But first... When it comes to setting yourself a challenge in writing, I imagine the question of how to write about the vast, white and relatively featureless landscape of Antarctica in an appealing way to the reader. It's one you'd be forgiven for not engaging with. Not so John McGregor, whose new novel Lean Fall Stand is, as far as I'm concerned, one of the most intensely humane and heartbreaking and beautiful books that you're going to read in 2021. As if Antarctica didn't pose enough of a challenge, he then went and tackled the neurological condition of aphasia. John McGregor, welcome to the book show. Hello. I, I recall you tweeting uh, a little while back about Antarctica with pictures. Tell us a little bit, first of all, about the origin of all of this. Well, I went I went to Antarctica in 2004, so it's, it's 17 years ago now. And um, I went with the British Antarctic Survey um, on a programme that was supported by the Arts Council in England. Um, and they were taking a couple of writers or artists down to Antarctica every season to see the work that the scientists there are doing and to experience a bit of living in Antarctica and and their idea was for for those artists then to kind of bring something of that experience back for for other people. That was my job that that, that I willingly accepted and and when I got back I I was completely stumped for a long time. I would imagine it would be a much easier job if you were heading there as a, as a visual artist or a photographer as opposed to somebody who then needs to, to, to come back and write about it. In hindsight, that is quite clear, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at, the, at the time, I, I, you know, I saw an advert that said writers and artists wanted to go to Antarctica, so off I went. And you know, as you kind of alluded to, it, it's, it's, a, it's such a peculiar landscape. And it's such a kind of alien experience being there that I, I you know, I literally struggled to, to put it into words. I presume it was a, a hindrance of some kind that you didn't actually even really physically make it as far as Antarctica in the end, did you? I didn't. No, no. It's one of one of life's great disappointments. Um, I, I was I was on a ship heading down to to the main Antarctic base, and the ship. I mean, we almost got stuck in the ice, uh, which was very exciting. Um, there, there was particularly thick sea ice that year, and, and the ship was trying to ram its way through. And, and eventually, after about a week, I had to, to give up and come back to the Falklands before they ran out of fuel. So, so I had this incredible experience of kind of going to Antarctica and kind of never quite getting there. And I couldn't really come home and say I was disappointed because obviously everyone was kind of jealous and they were like well you've still been to Antarctica yeah it's not as if you've spent the, the interim doing nothing I mean you've, you've, you've obviously written novels in between very successful ones it's an, an elegant metaphor but I'm going to use it anyway what then breaks the ice for you in terms of making this part of a fictional story that's that's a great metaphor um I think <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm not the writer and you are. <laughs> I, think, I mean, I, yeah. I guess if the icebreaker would have fallen fallen through into the into the ICC, um, th- this idea of, of of not being able to find the words was was what was the breakthrough in the end because I got really interested in why I was struggling to to make sense of it and why I was struggling to put it into words and 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 what what it is that that language can do and and sometimes can't do, and that. Somehow, I'm not quite sure how I made the connection, but it got me interested in the idea of, of aphasia 
and people who've had strokes and people who who lose or lose some of their language, you know, the ability to make language and to understand and process language. And just I just got really interested in exploring what, what that would mean to, to, to live with that. I mean, as you know, that, that that's what the book segues into being about. You know, it starts off in Antarctica and it ends up ends up in a, in a home in, in Cambridge with these people trying to, to make sense of how their lives have changed because of this loss of language. I would presume in, in that it's quite hard to write about uh, Antarctica as a subject. I mean, the only time I've ever seen aphasia being mentioned really anywhere is in, in nonfiction stuff in, in the likes of Oliver Sacks books. So was there a similar kind of hill to climb when it came to writing about something like aphasia in the way that you've written, uh, but doing it for, for a fiction? Yeah, yeah, there really was. I mean, I, I was struggling with this thing it was difficult to write about, so I, I tried to fix that by finding something even harder to write about. Um, there was part of me that really relished that challenge. You know, how can I find a way to use language to describe what happens when language fails? You know, that that was quite exciting, but also really stupid. You know, it was really, it was really difficult. Yeah, I had to try lots of different things. And, and actually the, the breakthrough for me was when I stopped trying to kind of to imagine what that experience is like internally and I stopped trying to kind of reproduce you know, a kind of version of that experience inside someone's head who, who lives with that condition and, and focused instead on how communication happens and doesn't happen or, or attempts to happen, you know, between somebody with aphasia and, and their carers or the people around them. Um, and, and I kind of got... I got there by meeting people with aphasia and you know, I was going to a, a self-help group and getting to know people over a number of months and seeing that experience kind of played out in real life actually did help me to, to bring that into fiction and, and, and just to see, you know, when people haven't got words, they've still got lots of other ways of communicating. It's kind of exciting and, and, and moving to, to see how people do that. It is. It's it's immensely so. I, I think that the, the frequently these days, things that we are reading, even though they've been written prior to the pandemic, they've kind of been given a colour by our experience of the last uh, 12 months. You, mm. You've written about the importance uh, and about the, the quietness of the act of caring. Where did that come from? I, I don't know. I don't know. I, mean, I, I often don't know where these things kind of bubble up from, but I did become really interested... Once I'd created this situation for the characters and I had, you know, the, the character of Robert comes home completely changed by his stroke and, and completely reliant on mainly on his wife. And his wife is somebody who's, who's always been very independent and, and their marriage has kind of thrived because of their separations and, and, and the, their absences. And she's now thrown into being his, his full-time carer and just has to get on with it. And, you know, sometimes resents it and sometimes t- takes comfort in it. But often it's just boring and frustrating and, and challenging. And I guess I drew on on my own experiences of, of sometimes being thrown into those situations, on what I know of care work and how kind of undervalued that is, well, certainly in terms of, of pay and conditions. But also the amount that, that we rely on people, on family members to, to care and to kind of fill fill in the gaps and, and I kind of that's something I, kn- I know about and uh, that I'm bothered by and so that that I guess that fed into what I was writing. I wanted to ask you as well about the potential influence of writing the Reservoir tapes for for radio because post Reservoir 13 you're at the Reservoir tapes 
and they were written for radio and about how that m- might have affected your work or the the way you write or the way you've written this. Yeah, it had a really big effect, actually. I think I think it, it kind of changed the, the way I think about writing in a, in a really unexpected and interesting way. So I was I was commissioned to write those stories for Radio 4 and, you know, Reservoir 13 was written with, with a lot of importance placed on kind of mood and tone and atmosphere and language and, and all the things that I, that I love doing. But I knew that writing these stories for the radio, I knew a couple of things. The first was that when you hear something on the radio, it's different to reading it on the page and there's no chance to kind of pause and reflect or to kind of glance back at what you've just read to check what's happening. And then the other thing was that, especially, you know, a radio station like, like Radio 4, there's a lot of people who are just, they just put it on for no reason. They just walk into the kitchen and you just turn the radio on. And and it's kind of potluck and something comes on. Like I kind of had this image in my mind of, of somebody having listened to something previously and then my story comes on and they're just about to turn it off because they weren't planning on listening to it. And I knew that I had to put something in that first sentence to make them not turn it off. And then I knew that the second sentence had to do the same job. And I kind of had this image of a, of a listener kind of hovering with their hand over the off off switch, you know, ready to, to get rid of the story. And I kept having to keep them with it. And I think I brought that into this book. And, you know, something like Antarctica, you know, a storm in Antarctica is a good opportunity to think about drama and suspense and narrative. The book is absolutely beautiful. And just maybe to finish off, I look forward to see Norwich City in the Premier League uh, next season as well. Thank you very much. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it nervously. John McGregor, thanks for joining us on The Book Show. Thank you. Now I'm joined by Brida Brown, host of the Inside Books podcast. Border or no border for crime novels on this island, it's huge times at the moment. It has been brilliant, certainly over the past two decades nearly. You've got names such as Liz Nugent, Jane Casey, John Connolly, Sinead Crowley, Patricia Gibney, Joe Spain. There's loads of them there. But in tandem with that, we've also seen a huge growth in Northern Irish crime fiction. And what's brilliant about this is that authors are telling great stories that are located on their home patch, but they're also addressing the elephant in the room, which is the legacy of the really violent era of, of the Troubles. So I suppose, why are we seeing this increase in Northern Noir? We might as well call it what it is. Um, why are we seeing that now? Well, I suppose in the three decades leading up to the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, I mean, there was so much violence in, in Northern Ireland and on the border region that, not surprisingly, nobody wanted to write crime fiction based there, but more importantly, nobody actually wanted to read about it either. Um, but obviously with the past a time that's changed and we're seeing now that more of the authors are incorporating the past because they need to explain how that past is having and still having an impact on existing generations and I suppose in terms of names who have we got we've got Brian McGilloway Steve Kavanagh, we've Claire McGowan, Stuart Neville, Anthony Quinn. And actually, we've got some brilliant female authors who've entered the pitch as well over the past little while with Claire Allen, Sharon Dempsey and Anne-Marie Neary. And it's interesting, Brian McGilloway has said, you know, when he started writing his first novel in 2003, and that was only about, you know, five years after the Good Friday Agreement, he deliberately set out to write a novel that had nothing to do with the Troubles. But he said as he started writing, he found he had to incorporate it because he couldn't ignore it because of the impact it still has on people's lives today. So tell me a little bit about themes of Northern Noir and how they differ or maybe how they're the same to everywhere else. The themes are always going to be very similar. You know, you're always going to deal with sort of drug dealing, smuggling, people trafficking, all of that type of thing. Um, What's interesting, though, it's against a very different backdrop where you are in a border scenario where you've two different policing 
jurisdictions. So you've a situation in all of these books where you've got on Garda Siakana and you've got the police service in Northern Ireland and they have to cooperate daily, in fact, as you can see from some of these narratives, uh, to make sure that they're tackling cross-border crime all the time. So I find it really interesting just to see how that works and, and sometimes it's official, sometimes it's, it's not official. And also because of the border, you know, literally something can be two miles or two kilometres away from each other and but people can move in that space and be in a different jurisdiction and not be caught for what they have done. So I think it sort of opens your eyes a little bit into, into the land that's there and also, as we said, the repercussions that that violent era is still having on, on it generations today. There are a, a fair number of the books, though, though, that aren't set in the present or indeed set in Northern Ireland at all. That's true. And we've the likes of Adrian McKinty and he did the Detective Sean Duffy series, which is set in the 1980s. Now, he didn't write it until, he didn't start writing it until 2012. So it was quite a retrospective look. But more recently, he's written The Chain. And that's the huge US thriller that he's become particularly famous for in the past couple of years. Steve Kavanagh, as well as the Belfast lawyer, he's written the Eddie Flynn series. I'm not sure if he's written anything actually in Northern Ireland or based it in Northern Ireland. He's, the, the Eddie Flynn series is based in the US. And Stuart Neville, as well, he had uh, the Serena Flanagan series based in Northern Ireland but now he writes US based thrillers under his pen name Halen Beck so look it's a hugely fertile ground there in terms of you know if you want to read Northern Irish writers you can either decide to read some of the content that's based there or some of the brilliant stuff that they're locating elsewhere. Okay so you've whet some people's appetites give us some Mm. ideas as to what people might read. Well I suppose with crime writing a lot of them do end up writing a series of books so the one I suppose I really love is Claire McGowan's Paula Maguire's series. So Paula Maguire is a forensic psychologist and she focuses on finding missing people. She was brought up during the Troubles. Her mother actually disappeared when she was quite young. She ran out of the place as soon as she could but now due to family circumstances has to come back and to face sort of the past. So there's a different plot in each book which is brilliant but also she's investigating what did happen to her mother. There's six episodes or six books in it and the best bit I think about this series is you do find out at the end what did happen to her mother and that was a huge payoff. Tell me about Brian McGilloway's Ben Devlin series. So this is the Ben Devlin series, six books as well. The sixth one has actually just been published and it's the first one in nine years. So fans are going to be really happy to, to see that back. So again, as I was saying, this he's a Garda who's based right on the border between Straban and Lifford. And he's dealing again with the complexity of, of policing in both of those areas. We're dealing with everything from smuggling to, you know, former paramilitaries trying to make up for past deeds and informants. It's just, again, really interesting plot for each book. And also we get invested in him as well as an individual. And you've mentioned Steve Kavanagh? Steve Kavanagh so the Eddie Flynn series the brilliant thing about Steve Kavanagh is the liners that he uses to describe his books so one of his books is called 13 and the liner is the serial killer isn't on trial he's on the jury and the other one is 50-50 which is two sisters on trial for the murder of their father but they're accusing each other and it's one is a liar and one is a killer who do you believe so I mean you couldn't not read those and his next book number six is out this summer And maybe give us just one more to finish. One final one, Standalone, is from a journalist called Malachi O'Doherty. He has been based in in Northern Ireland writing for a number of years, so has a huge insight into that. Has written a lot of non-fiction and memoir. But his first um, fiction title is Terry Branken Has a Gun. Terry Branken was a very bold boy in the past, but he's, you know, now a solicitor and he's now a property developer. But as we know, those legacy issues and uh, all those past deeds do come back to haunt you. That should give you plenty to think about. Uh, Breda Brown, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. Breda's podcast Inside Books is available wherever you find yours.
Now it's time once again for an author to meet their readers. Here are Karen Reynolds and Muriel Norse to tell us all about this week's book club. Our book club is called Reading Between the Wines and we are located in Newcastle County Wicklow. We have 15 members, all female, and with an age range of 20 years. The book club started in January 2007 after a lively Christmas party and nine of the founding members are still in the club today. We meet on the first Tuesday of each month. The host provides snacks and wine and reveals her choice of book over tea and cake, asking discussion questions at the next meeting. Every Christmas we have an outing which includes a fancy meal, a theatre trip and presents. One of our most memorable trips was when Julie was giving birth in Hollis Street Maternity Hospital. We waved up at her window on our way home. That baby was the first of seven book club babies. Now we're planning a trip away to celebrate 15 years together and the end of lockdown. During lockdown isolation, we got creative. Our Christmas party involved a very exciting themed murder mystery evening. Our New Year's meeting was a wonderful trip down memory lane, voting for our favourite book from each of our 14 years, culminating in a live vote for the overall winner. Each monthly host delivers a goodie bag with snacks and treats, along with a surprise reveal of the following month's book selection. That sounds less like a book club and more like a lifestyle. That's fantastic. Uh, The book selected for their most recent meeting was The Last House on Needless Street by Katrina Ward. And here's Claire Adams to set the scene. Eleven years ago, Dee lost her six-year-old sister Lulu, who disappeared, never to be seen again. Dee's family fell apart and all that she has left is her quest to find the person who took her sister. The determined and watchful Dee fixates on Ted Bannerman and takes up residence next to his dilapidated home. Ted is a strange man, living a reclusive and lonely life and living for the times when his defiant young daughter Lauren comes to visit. Another point of view comes from Olivia, Ted's beloved cat, her God-given mission to take care of and protect Ted. The storytelling creates an unsettling atmosphere right from the start with a spiral of twists and turns as you move through the novel. It's creepy, compelling, dark and heartbreaking and nothing is what it seems. You can absolutely tell this book club knows what they're talking about. The author of The Last House on Needless Street, Katrina Ward, joins me now. Katrina, welcome to the book show. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Um, I think they enjoyed it. They're very early adopters though because are you still on the promo trail at this stage? It's only been out for, for a couple of months. Yeah, I mean, it came out March 18th. So they're, I mean, they're hot on trend. Um, and I'm really, always really grateful for, for people looking out for kind of, you know, new fiction and keeping their ear to the ground like that. I think, I think it's really, uh, really speaks well of them. In terms of the book itself, it, it can't really have done you much harm to have Stephen King's words on, on the cover. <laughs> how, how, how did that happen? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? Um, it's, it was, it was, Quite simply, one of the most extraordinary days of my life, professionally and and personally. I don't. I have no idea how it happened. I have no idea. I, the idea that Stephen King knows my name is still quite extraordinary. Um, he just one day he just tweeted about it, and you know I'll never be rude about social media again after that. <laughs> I just it was incredible. Um, and, you know, as the, as the a writer of of you know the, the darker side of genre, you know his books have meant a lot to me. So and personally and professionally, it was quite a blinder of a day and I actually I did something really dorky so I marked it in my calendar so that every year when the day comes around <laughs> Stephen King day I don't know it just felt significant you know so as Stephen King has said uh, the last house on Needless Street is a true nerve shredder it has mind-blowing secrets and I haven't read anything this exciting since Gone Girl let's see what the reading between the wines book club thought about it our first question is from Deirdre Byrne There are so many different narrative threads running through the book with several aha moments that you have to jump back to double check. 
yet you managed to play fair with the reader. Was that difficult to do? We did think you must have had a spreadsheet to keep track. <laughs> um, yes, it was. I've never done anything as as challenging um, technically and, and actually personally on an emotional level as this book. So, um, and it got to the stage where I'd been over and over and over it so many times. I never did one of those sort of serial killer kind of, you know, bits of yarn diagrams that you see in the films. But I sort of felt like I had one in my mind. So... I could I could visualize it. It was really peculiar. I've never had this in a in, with a book before, but I could see it laid out in front of me, almost like a map. And I developed this unerring instinct of being able to go to any <laughs> to any part of the text just by kind of being able to pick a word. I could I could just find it immediately. So it became almost like a big diagram, but I, it had to be like that. It had to be that meticulously plotted in order to do the plot and and the subject matter justice, I I think. But yes, um, a challenge indeed. Our second question comes from Caroline Hill. Your characters inhabit a dark world. What did you do to clear your head or relax while writing this novel? Yeah, it's, I think, a novel about hope as well as about darkness, but it certainly, I did feel like it took a toll emotionally to spend so long in it as I, as I had to. And um, I think there's a good rule that I made up for myself quite early on, which is if at the end of the day, if you're feeling a little, a little sad, maybe, um, go and see something older than you or of a different species than you. So <laughs> go find a cat or a castle. Like look at something that, um, that takes you out of it, out of yourself, and just makes you remember that the world is big and wide and beautiful. And I was very lucky in that respect because my parents live on Dartmoor and I was locked down for quite a substantial portion of, of the year I was writing with, with them. So you've got these beautiful moors to walk on and wild ponies and lovely kind of like rabbits and foxes and things like that and, and, and owls at night. And it's really, it, it, it's really helpful when, as you say, quite rightly... You know, there's a lot of darkness in it. I recommend Dogs and Forests. They've both worked for me. I'm completely with you on that one. Yes, um, those are good. Third question is from Pauline O'Sullivan from the Reading Between the Wines Book Club in County Wicklow. Katrina, I heard that your book is going to be made into a film and you're executive producer. Is it important for you to have a significant input in its production? Well, this is a funny one, actually, because I'd, um, the first thing I asked um, the Imaginarium, the, the, the wonderful company who have optioned Needless Street, is how are you going to do it? Because as, as anyone who's read the book knows, there are significant challenges to telling that story in a visual medium. And they, I really liked what they said, which was at that time, very early on, they just went, I have no idea. I thought, well, that's honest. Um, and it... It's very, very rare that a writer gets a chance to be part of the process in the way that they have very, very generously allowed me to be. I think that was also part... I think that's also... They consider it sort of an advantage to work with the author on the project and they, you know, see the author as a resource. I think that's not always the case. Um, and it's... it's. I mean, even... It's very early days, but even, even so, it's very... It's very exciting. And our final question for you, Katrina, on The Last House on Needless Street comes from Miriam Johnston. Some writers say that their characters can take control of the book. Did you find that happening or did the book unfold as you had planned? Oh, yeah, it's a funny one, that, isn't it? Because I I knew I had to have a very, very meticulous plan for this. 
not just a plan for the drafting and writing of it, but also a, a research plan to look at the background of the such subjects I was talking about. So it felt to me like a very structured process from the beginning. I uh, it, it, Habitually, I, I never wrote like that before at all. I'm very much kind of, let's just see what happens, <laughs> with a kind of vague idea of plot. I, I knew I knew a lot of what was going to happen in this book, and I had I knew I had to be really precise about it which is not in my nature at all um so I learned a lot I think it, this book's taught me more than anything else I've, I've, I've ever written but there were moments even within that that kind of uh, very planned structure and that you know the, the structure that I'd spent months and like days agonizing over whereby a sudden it suddenly took on like this blossoming life of its own and and yeah the characters suddenly did things which I hadn't planned for them to do which I think the most magical moment of writing a book really is when that starts to happen and and yes you, you've created a world you know just before uh, I let you go, Katrina, and I'm glad none of our book club members asked this, what was it like writing for a cat? <laughs> I mean, it was it was very strange because in a way, in a way, we all sort of know what we think about cats, don't we? We think, you know, we we have these ideas that we project onto them. Uh, we think of them as quite sphinx-like and possibly quite disapproving. I, I I wanted to use those ideas, but also perhaps think a bit more about. Why do we need to attribute those feelings to them? I, I worked really hard to try and get a voice that sounded like a cat. It's so difficult because you don't want, want to be whimsical, uh, and but also it's got to sort of make sense and be related, you know, be recognisable to our kind of uh, symbolic schematic. But what the moment I realised that I think I, I'd, I'd, I'd hit upon it, is and I don't think I can consider this a spoiler. Is when I realised that what what a cat would most like to do, if it could talk, would be to present a TV show about itself, uh, describing different types of naps. And I thought, well, okay, that's that's what the character is. She became so evolved. I I sort of forgot she was a cat sometimes, you know. As a one-time cat owner, Katrina, I think that makes complete sense to me. Um, <laughs> thanks, Amelia Katrina Ward, for coming on the book show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for such great questions. I really enjoyed them. The Last House on Needless Street is published by Viper. Thanks to Katrina Ward and to the Reading Between the Wines Book Club in Newcastle, County Wicklow for the questions. If you'd like to volunteer your book group to take part in a future episode, you can drop us a line to bookshow at rte.ie. That is it for the book show this week on RTE Radio 1, the podcast available wherever you find yours. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BookshowRTE. I'll talk to you again next week. And as ever, don't forget to check with your local bookshop or your local library for any of the books that we feature on the programme.